Welcome back, everybody. I'm Greg McEwen. I'm your host, and I am here with you on this journey to learn, to grow, so that we can accomplish more, but to do it without burning out. Today is part two of my interview with Bruce Feeler. Bruce is the author of six consecutive New York Times bestselling books. He's a deep thinker, and he's interviewed thousands of people to try to understand what really leads to a higher contribution. Here's what it's not. Thinking of work as a single linear career where your job is to go higher and higher is not the way to maximize contribution. By the end of this episode, among other things, you will have what Bruce feels is the single most powerful question he has ever discovered for helping people to find what their real, essential mission and calling in life is. Let's get to it. If you haven't yet signed up for the One Minute Wednesday newsletter, I'd encourage you to take a moment to do that. Just go to gregmcewan.com forward slash 1MW and join more than 160,000 people who have already signed up and are receiving that newsletter every week. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. So I'm familiar with the Marshall Duke research. It was this research that gave me the language uh, intergenerational self. Just yes. this, the idea that- I that noticed you dropped that in. <laughs> yeah, that that even exists is I think quite profound because even as you make this important transition, our conversation to narratives in work, I'm not at all convinced that 
everybody has figured out the first part. Yes, I agree. You, you know, when I ask people about this, I will say, okay, well, show of hands, who can just name first and last name of your great grandparents? Right. So everyone has eight great grandparents. And you know, all I'm asking is first and last name. And you might get five people out of a group of 250. And, and, and I don't even get them to prove that it's true. So these are just the ones that are like, you know, putting their hands up for that. This is a, this is tiny percentage of people that know even the first thing you would know if you knew anything about them. So the, the loss of intergenerational knowledge and with it, the loss of intergenerational self can hardly be overstated, I think. I didn't know that you had found that it was the number one predictor. What did you say? Number one predictor the of- number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being, and they, they tested it against a raft of other studies. That just completely connects with what I have learned anecdotally. But, but I, I just can't wait to dig into that specific research now. It's very, look, the, 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 this is just one of the things that I happen to have done in my life is the one that took this research from, from obscurity and, and popularized it in the world. And I'm grateful to have done it. And I've become very close to Marshall. And I, like you also, spend a fair bit of time you know, talking to different groups of different backgrounds. And I have talked about this research quite a lot in different groups. And the number one question that I get when I do this is, what happens if my kid is adopted? right? It, how does it work? Is mm. it passed down through the blood? Now, because I've become quite close to Marshall, in fact, I learned of this uh, at his home in an intergenerational family dinner. I happen to know that Marshall and his wife, Sarah, have two natural-born children and an adopted child. Mm. And it has nothing to do with blood. It has everything to do with how you talk about what your family is. Okay. And Marshall, because he's got like the biggest twinkle in his eye of anybody that I know, he's just retired after 50 years of teaching at Emory, says, it doesn't even matter if the story that you tell is true or not. <laughs> so I had an experience when my kids mm. were young where one of my kids like went through a phase where, where she didn't want to go to school. Okay. And we, and she was like, you know, didn't have access to her feelings at the time. So she couldn't really talk about it. Right. This was not a problem with me and it's certainly not a problem with my, my wife who went to Harvard and Yale law school. Like she loves school. Right. And so we, we tried everything. And then one day she came home and I said, you know, and I said, oh, you know what? I was just talking to my mom today. And she reminded me that when I was your age, I went through a period where I didn't want to go to, it was an entirely made up story, but it was designed to show that that you're that she was not alone. That none of us is alone. I mean, and this is what Marshall said when I asked about this. He said there are three types of family narratives, and this gets really to the heart of what we've been talking about in this entire conversation. There's an ascending narrative, right? We came from nothing. We worked hard. We have a lot. There's a descending narrative. We had a lot. There was a war, a recession, a pandemic, and we lost it all. Or there's an oscillating family narrative. Okay. Your, your grandfather got off the boat and he built, you know, he, he built a big company and then his house burned down. His daughter was the first in her generation to go to college and she became the vice president of a bank and then she got breast cancer. The children who understand, the adults who understand that our lives are oscillating, understand that when they hit a rough patch and they are going to hit a rough patch, they know people. It is in their collective family narrative, in their intergenerational self, that others they know also hit setbacks, got stuck, you know, lost a loved one, 
got sick, suffered through a downturn. That is what is essential. Breaking the expectation that every narrative is going to be up. Rags to riches, up by your bootstraps, bigger salary, higher floor, better view. That's the only story of success we've been telling, Greg. And that's the story that we have to denormalize and renormalize. But my data show is that you're going to go through 20 workquakes, 20 disruptive events in your work life where you're going to reevaluate. You're going to have a, a um, you know, some sort of turn and move up or some sort of turn and move down. That's what we have to normalize. You're going to be disruptive. You're going to spend half of your life in a life transition. And we have to stop talking about these transitions as periods you have to grit and grind and resilience. Don't even get me ranting on resilience. It's, it's a ridiculous diversion and negative idea because resilience suggests it comes from a, it comes from a, um, a spring. It suggests we're going to go and we're going to bounce back to where we were. Nope. Some people might, but more of us are going to bounce sideways or forward. That's the story we need to normalize. You said something that, a linear expectation in a non-linear life causes serious problems. Yes. And, and, and this, I think the answer to this question is the, also the answer to why does this matter? Why does all of this research, why does what you've written in the search matter? So from everything you've said, can you just get to the heart of that? Like what happens to a person? who has linear expectations in a non-linear life. They make life decisions that do not focus on the meaningful life that they are seeking, that chase this outdated dream that they think they should be chasing. The decisions are the wrong decisions, and two years later, they are back facing another example, another iteration of the same bad choice. Okay, let's just take a work because that's what we're talking about here in the case of the search. Okay, 70% of people are now saying that they are unhappy at work. Okay, these are numbers from 2023. A study was released last week as we tape this conversation that 75% of people are expecting to look for new work in the next 12 months. Okay, so we are at an unparalleled moment in the history of work in the United States, okay, according to the no less an authority as than the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the, Amer the United States government, a million people a week are quitting a job, not laid off, are quitting a job. That's 50 million people a year. That's one third of the workforce are voluntarily leaving a job that is twice as high as the number has ever been historically. Okay, we are saying there's this idea of the great resignation that they came from the pandemic. That's total BS. That number has gone up every year except for one since 2000. Okay, mm. okay, something is happening in work that's never happened in the history of work. What is that something? We are changing that fewer people are searching merely for work anymore. More people are searching for work with meaning. We are shifting from what I call a means-based economy to a meaning-based economy. Mm -hmm. And you asked why it matters. I've just We've just done the numbers. Three quarters of us are unhappy with our career. Well, it turns out the problem is not with you. It's with the idea of the career itself. 
It's the linear trap. It's the equivalent of the linear life. For most of human history, there never was a career. Most people lived where they worked and worked where they lived. The word career was never used before 150 years ago. What happened 150 years ago? Two things. Number one, people left rural areas and moved into cities. And then mass migration happened. So people moved from one country to another and they settled in cities. So all these people needed something to do. So a guy named Frank Parsons in Boston in 1908, okay, who was a guy who had himself 40 jobs in the course of his 30-year life, <laughs> um, he sat down and created a mechanism where you would sit one of these rural farmers or uh, immigrants or whatever down, ask them a series of questions to determine who they are, give them a list of jobs, and make a match. He basically invented the idea of the career. And within two years, because of the vocational bureau that he opened, career counseling as a field begins, the career was invented. Okay? <laughs> and what's the visual manifestation of that? The resume. And what is the resume? It is a linear construct of go from one job to one. That comes, so that's the next change. So these are all the inventive things. Okay, this is, these are a lie. You have a career, that's a lie. You have, you know, you have a path, that's a lie. You, even the idea that you have a job, that's also a lie, as you've written about in, in a lot of your work, because in fact, people have multiple jobs these days. Only half of us even have a, a main job anymore. We have side jobs and hope jobs and ghost jobs and all these terms we could talk about. But the, so the problem is, if you've bought into the linear narrative of a career, when you go through a change, and my data show it's every 2.85 years, we have a work quake, as I call it, okay? And by the way, younger, you know, Xers have a more than boomers, millennials have a more than Xers, Zers have a more than millennials, have a more than millennials, women have them more than men, diverse workers have them more than non-diverse workers, which means they're only going to increase. If you're in a work quake, if you go buy into the narrative and just go chase the next job, you'll get a job. And two and a half years from now, you will be unhappy again and may facing this choice because you're not doing the internal work to determine what's the story you want to tell. You're chasing a myth of a story that no longer exists. That's what's at stake. There's a movement that started uh, in Silicon Valley called the Race to Nowhere. Mm. And it was because of young children in school committing suicide. And it's been subscribed to just the stress level that some of these students are being put under and the sense that if I don't get the right grades, then I won't go to the right university and then won't get the right job. And so it's, everything is dependent on this single moment. Uh, and, and if I'm failing now, it's all over and all the disappointment and everything. And it, it feels consistent with what you're describing. Because I think what you're saying is that the problem with the linear narrative is that it, it turns these transitions into more disruptive, more like it does more damage than it needs to. And also, we don't learn the right lessons from the transition. Yes, for we sure. Just, That's correct. Yes. Though those two things, like it's worse than it needs to be in the transition. And we keep trying to get ourselves back on track to a narrative that isn't helpful in the first place. Is that the is that the gist of this? This is the this is the why this matters so much. First of all, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You're an extraordinarily talented listener and and you know kind of summarizer of, of what you're hearing i just want to pause and admire no, that life skill that's um, kind of and, and, and i mean it genuinely um 
Yes, here has, here's how I would put it, okay? Let's just deal with the life quakes for a second, and then we'll talk about the work quakes, okay? We have three to five of these life quakes in the course of our lives, and the signature piece of data from my first book, Life is in the Transitions in this space, is that their average length is five years. So three to five times in our lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we spend in transition. If we stigmatize the transition, we are stigmatizing half of our lives, Greg. And what we've done is what you've just said is you've said we've fetishized the, the stable periods, that that is on track. There is no track. Every sh- life is a different shape, okay? And some people don't even look at their life as a track. They look at their life as a heart or a minibus, right? Or a, a piece of lettuce. So the, the idea of the track isn't even the universal view. That's point number one. Now let's turn to work where we're going to have 20 of these work quakes in the course of our lives. What to me is the signature piece of data of the search? The signature piece of data of the search, and I have looked at 3,000 work quakes and I've studied where they began. And the majority of them, 55% of work quakes begin outside of the workplace. 55% of workquakes have nothing to do with work. They have everything to do with our personal life, with our health, with, with something in our family. One of our, a loved one moves. We have a child with an anxiety disorder. We have a kid on the travel soccer team. Our mindset changes. We no longer want to be, say, as someone I interviewed, a, a corporate lawyer. We want to be a, um, a physical trainer. And this woman, Robin Arzon, becomes the vice president of Peloton. Okay, or we have one of the highest jobs in the United States intelligence. And then we, as um, Eric Velez VR tells me the story, that's one of the opening stories in the search. Okay, he is one of the highest ranking people. He runs intelligence for the FBI. And he leaves there and he goes to the Walt Disney Company. He runs security for the entire company. He's making $800,000 a year. Okay, and then he's watching Finding Neverland on TV one night. That's the documentary about about Michael Jackson. And he said that happened to me. Wow. And it turns out he's been keeping the secret for 50 years, even from his wife. Wow. Well, it and sounds he said, like he's to some extent he's keeping it from himself. Correct. And he says, I would I have this successful job. I make a lot of money. Okay. I have the highest commendations from the White House, from my national security work. Okay. But I would drive home and I would see people who are working at car washes or auto mechanics. And I would say they have what I don't have, which is they're happy and I'm not. And I'm not prepared to do this. And Disney was great. Give him as much time. He walked away and said, I want to deal with myself. I need to un- to, to fix me. So if you are it preschool, in high school, in college, at 24, constantly calculating the metric. And this is why he became so successful. He said, I would be in a room of 14 people. And if 13 people said that Eric is the greatest uh, colleague I've ever seen, if there was one who wasn't saying that, I would like focus on them. 55% of the changes in our work begin in our personal lives, in our families, in our heads, in our bodies. So trying to stay on that track, you can't anticipate when these external or internal events are going to happen because the idea of the path, there is no path. There is no career, that's lie number one. There is no path, that's lie number two. There is no job, that's lie number three. And there's only one truth, that only you can write your story of success. Only you can figure out what is it. Maybe you want money, good for you. 
but you also might want service or self-expression, okay? Or to follow a lo- or, or to follow a spouse, okay? Or to mix multiple side jobs to do it. So the point is what my book tries to do is give you, as I call them, 21 questions to find work you love, how to do the work. And this to me is the greatest convergence in what you and I have been doing parallel. The pe- because I will say it here, if there's one thing I believe, Greg, is that the people who are happiest and most successful and find most meaning in work, they don't climb, they dig. They do the internal work. They do what I call the personal archaeology. In my book, I call you call it a life audit. I call it a meaning audit in my book. They do the internal excavation to find out the childhood ghosts, what they learned from their parents, you know, the stories that they've always been trying. They do this excavation and figure out who they are, what story do they want to tell. That's the only way to move forward. If not, you'll just get another job and two and a half years from now, you'll be back doing it again. So this leads us to the now what? We've covered the what and the so what, but now what? Now you've identified uh, in the search some overarching questions. So the first question you ask, for example, is who is your who? Can you explain the overarching questions, why you framed them that way? Okay, so what are we talking about here? We're saying that the old story, the old rules have <laughs> are no longer apply. The idea of follow your passion when you're young, you know, like sell it to your parents, <laughs> set off down the path, like keep climbing until you reach the top. The that doesn't work anymore. Okay, 20 times in your life, you're going to be knocked off of that path. There is no career. There's no path. There's no job. Um, So what do you do when you are thrown off course? (laughs) What do you do when you're in a work quake? Okay, so the essence of this is what I call you have to you have to do the work, right? You have to uh, conduct the meaning audit, as I say. You have to rewrite your own story. You You can't chase someone else's dream. You have to chase your own dream. How do you conduct a meaning audit? Exactly. So that's what we're talking about. How do you determine what is your dream? And, and at, at, at its heart, there are three parts to it. Number one, what's the difference between meaning and happiness? Happiness is what you feel in the moment. Meaning is about stitching together past, present, and future. Okay? So the essence of a meaning audit is to go back to the past. We all have these stories and expectations and parables and homilies and, and myths built inside of us, you know, from our parents, from our culture. So you have to go back and identify what is it that locked into you when you were young. So step one is to look at the past. Step two is to look at the present. Like, where are you right now? And then step three is to look forward to the future. And so as you say... How do you tell a story? Fortunately, there's some knowledge about this, okay? And so let's go back to what Kipling said, right? Which is there are these six questions, right? Who, what, when, where, uh, why, and how. The problem that we do is that we put how first and we call our networks, right? And we post on, you know, social media and that we go right to finding and the problem is we're successful and we find a job, but we haven't done the stuff that's beyond that. So you've got to ask a series of questions. Who is your who? What is your what? When is your when? Where is your where? And so on. And my book kind of walks you through that process, but just to pick a couple. So let's just take two questions from the past. I would say the first question I'm interested to know is what were the upsides and downsides about work that you learned from your parents? 
I started asking, what did you learn from your parents? Everyone said, the power of hard work. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So like, what are the downsides? Oh, then it got interesting. Like, my parents worked so much, there was not family. Or my father, uh, in many cases, like, you know, started a bunch of companies and they failed, you know? So it's like, go work for someone else or my father worked for the same company for 40 years and got laid off. And so therefore I want to do something. I, I don't want to work for somebody else. Like, what did you learn? Okay. Now that's not something that you choose. That's what you inherit. If you want to get to um, what you chose, this is the most valuable question to ask. Um, in fact, I'll start with you. Greg, other than family, who were your role models as a child? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say, I mean, I'm thinking now of of a family friend uh, who you know, seemed to me to have a great marriage, a great family. So that was sort of a, a model of what I wanted. I'm thinking here of other authors, you know, before I ever thought I would be an author, I'd read their books even when I was quite young. Uh, and, and it wasn't so much what they wrote about, it was more who they were. And again, I would say the similarity is the kind of marriage and family they had. Mm -hmm. Yes, they were successful in other ways, but that seems to have been, I hadn't really thought about that until now because that's true. Even there are some, some church leaders that I, uh, I admired and was mentored by. And the same thing is true. I was drawn to those that seemed to explicitly have marriage and family. That was, that was the kind I would aspire to. That's beautiful. And that's the question. It's like, other than family, what role models did you have? And what did you admire about them? That's the follow-up question, okay? Okay, and the reason that this is so telling is that we don't choose our parents, okay? We inherit our parents, and then we have to learn pros and cons from them. Our role models are the first decision and choice we ever make about work because we are choosing to uh, connect ourselves with them. If you want to know what you should be doing now, look at what you were admiring back then. And what did these things have in common? You led in all three cases with character, okay, with family, okay, and then you went to ideas, being a public person, okay? I know very little about you, actually, other than things I've learned that you talked about, but I know you're interested in, you know, in character, and I know that you're interested in ideas. And your answer revealed that. And that's why these are effective questions, okay? So those are some questions about the past. And I have, uh, you know, I have another 10 questions like that in the search. And now let's talk about today. Then I would like you to know, like, you know, fill in this blank. I'm at a moment in my life when blank, okay? How you answer that question, some people will say, I'm in a moment in my life where I want to be a supportive spouse. I'm in a moment in my life when my children are young. And it's not about me right now. It's about being a caretaker. I'm in a moment when I have um, a, an aging parent who needs my attention. So now is not the good time to have work that's going to take me away from home three weeks a month. Okay? I'm in a moment in my life when it talks about where you are right now. Okay? Another question about today is what kinds of stories do you like? Okay, um, and the kinds of stories that you consume 
turned out to be the kinds of I talked to a man, a wonderful man named Isaiah Warner, right? Uh, it's like the, the the first stories I have in my book. Who grew up literally picking cotton uh, in Louisiana in, in a black school where the whites used the textbooks, and when they got outdated in six years, the white schools got new textbooks, and the black schools got the hand-me-down textbooks. Okay, he went was a went to an HBCU. He he became a chemistry professor when he arrived at LSU. Uh, 15 years ago, they had given four black students PhDs. Now he's personally given 100 black students. Okay, he's the most decorated chemist of any race in America. And he told me, when I asked him what kinds of stories, he said, I like detective stories because it's all about solving problems. And that's what I do in my work. So what kinds of stories do you like? Do you like to consume? Because if you like, you know, uh, Civil War videos uh, versus if you watch Bridgerton versus This Old House versus, you know, James Bond movies, these are all telling you a, a version of the kinds of stories you want to tell. So you, so, so part of a, a meeting audit is questions about the past. Part of it is about the present, and then part of it is about the future, right? Answer this question. My purpose right now is blank. What is your why? Why is your why? What is the why that motivates you right now? It might be making money. It might be giving back. It might be, you know, uh, solving food insecurity, okay? These kinds of questions are the deeper, harder question. And then the last question that I'll just throw out here is one of my favorite is what's the best advice you have for yourself right now? I ask people in their biggest work quake, what was the best advice that they got? Okay. Then I ask them what, whether that advice agreed with what they were already saying to themselves or contradicted it. In three quarters of cases, the advice people got reaffirmed what people were already saying to themselves. Often what we need is not a kick in the butt, it's a pat on the back. It's, so ask yourself what advice you have for yourself, listen to it, and then keep moving in that direction. There are two things I love about this. The first is that I have seen many, many, many self-reflective type exercises, but these feel fresh to me. And there's a specificity about them that's encouraging too, right? I mean this, I want to be the kind of person who, I want to do work that, I'm in a moment in my life when I want to be in a place that my purpose right now is the best advice I have for myself now is. I mean, these, these are deceptively simple. They're clear and they're precise, but they get to the heart of the matter, which is the point of the exercise. Uh, and so many times when people are writing sort of even things like, okay, write a mission statement and so on. It's like they're directionally right, but what people end up with isn't very actionable and isn't really fit for purpose often. So, so I really, you know, I really like these questions. I think these are these are very helpful. And the second observation I have is it comes back to this story that you shared in the beginning about your 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 father and how you giving him a prompt every week in an email helped him come back from the brink. And what that means is that he found meaning again. That's what I'm interpreting. I mean, he, he has a loss, complete loss of meaning. And, and is that life without meaning is pure suffering. That's all that's left. And so meaning is the, let's say, the primary vehicle, the only antidote I know of for addressing that suffering. And so... If you lose all meaning, you don't 
become some sort of blank state, you all you feel is pain in every aspect of your consciousness. So suicide suddenly becomes not anything but crazy because it's the promise of relieving all of this pain, but you found an alternative way to relieve it for him. And one that was probably surprising, this idea of the prompt. Well, let me first of all, Thank you for the kind words you've said about these questions. I've asked literally millions of questions in the last six, six years in the course of doing 1,500 hours of life stories. And so nothing is more important to me than questions. And the thing I would say about questions is there's only one metric for evaluating a question, and that is the quality of the answer. Everything else doesn't matter, okay? If it's about the vanity of how great the question is, that's an irrelevancy. It only works if it gets to the matter that we're talking about. And as I know you spent a lot of time how to get to the essence of things and how to help people find meaning. And so I just want to acknowledge and um, uh, express uh, gratitude and appreciation for recognizing all the work that went into these questions. That's point number one. As for meaning, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, where did the meaning movement came from? The meaning movement came from, from Viktor Frankl, right, in, in the middle of the Holocaust, saying yeah, that you can live without anything, but you can't live without meaning. And the issue, as you so beautifully just put it, is that it's confronting uh, pain. Like, one of my great ways of looking at the, at the world <laughs> is it's sort of a forgotten book that, that may not even have come across your radar screen, but it's called Men and Fire. It was written by Norman McLean. It was about the about fire jumpers, okay, in the the uh, upper Northwest um, who would parachute in when these wildfires would break out. And the and the and the firefighters and then the wildfires would go mad, uh, you know, and it would and the firefighters would try to outrun the fire, and any of the firefighters who outran the fire got killed. Only one group survived. What did they do? They burned their own fire and therefore ate up the fuel. And so that when the, and they ran toward the fire and when the fire ran toward them, it jumped them because there was no fuel. To me, this is like my metaphor of life. Run into the fire, mm. confront the pain, go to the most difficult question. For those who want to read that, it's The Young Men and Fire by Norman McLean. But continue with what it means to you. I have asked, as I've said, millions of questions. I asked a question in this set of interviews, what I call the work story project, right, that led to the search, that if you can ask one question right now, it would be this question. Right before I started this project, I read Hans Christian Andersen's final fairy tale. And it's about a young boy who's clearly a stand-in for Hans Christian Andersen, who's got away with words. And his auntie always says to him, you've got away with words. You're going to be a great poet. This young boy also suffers from a lot of toothaches, as does his, his aunt. And one night, he ushers her back from the theater. She, it's snowing. He has, she has to stay with him. And he's a young adult at this point. And he he's, has this delirious dream when he's visited uh, by this old, wizened woman. And he calls her Auntie Toothache. And Auntie Toothache says to him, every great poet has a great toothache. I love this. This may be the smartest thing I have ever read. Okay. And the name of this fairy tale is Auntie Toothache. And I asked everyone in my interviews, as I will now ask you, Greg, did you have a toothache as a child? Did you have a problem that you wanted to resolve? Okay. A, a dispute you wanted to uh, cure, <laughs> you know, an itch you wanted to scratch, a dilemma you wanted to resolve. Did you have a toothache as a child? I think the toothache for me, had to do with relationship pain. Mm. 
It had to do with what I was observing around me that I couldn't fix. You know, as a child, there's all sorts of problems you can't fix as a child. You know, that you can't fix your family. You can't fix your parents. You can't fix their marriage. You can't fix, you know, there's so many problems. And I think that that's part of the toothache is that you're faced with things that you can't do anything about now. I think that was more, even more formative than I've been previously aware of. I mean, all of these mentors that you ask me about, you know, they have a common thread. And even now, as I'm working on new research that feels like the most important project I've ever worked on professionally, has at the heart of it the idea of how do people solve the right problems with each other? You know, how do you actually deal, get to the, you know, face it, face the right problem, perceive the right problem, prioritize the right problem and get to the heart of it so that you can actually resolve it and move forward. And what happens when people don't do that is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, because what happens when you don't do that is that the, the, the problems just carry on. Even, even if you maintain a sort of equilibrium, it's absurd. An unresolved problem, a serious unresolved problem, even if you just maintain it, means that you are dealing with something for decades or an entire lifetime that could have been resolved maybe in a few hours, you know, or maybe in a few days or weeks, or maybe at the most months or a, a couple of years. I mean, if the book I, if the research and book I'm currently writing does not help to help people resolve the right problems in their most important relationships and to do it rapidly, which is important to me, then, then I'll, it's like, well, what's the point? There was no point writing that book. There was no point doing this research. It has other advantages, but if it can't do that, it won't, it won't do anything. And I, I, am, I am a little surprised at myself at being able to sort of think about that toothache in that way from that far back. That's beautifully expressed. We were talking earlier, right? You told that story about Al Gore and getting him to go back to the grandparents. And, and what I said in response was, there's no chance that later in that conversation, it didn't come back. Because I have done this, Greg, for 1,500 hours. I've sat in front of total strangers as you and I are meeting for the first time in this conversation. And I have asked these questions. And in 100% of the cases, there is this moment of individual discovery and then shared discovery that happens in this process. Okay, And that's why I said this is the best single question I've ever asked in 35 years of asking questions professionally. What is your toothache? Because the correlation with the meaningful work you want to be doing now is almost 100%. And there is a moment, as I frame this in the search, into the chapter called Why is Your Why? Which is what we're talking about. Where I talk about <laughs> chapter two in Paradise Laws, where you've got two angels, right? And, you know, and should they lead this counteroffensive against heaven? And one of them says, you know, no, we should, you know, we should not do it, right? Because we, you know, th th we should try to make peace, right? And so one says, we should turn our tortures into horrid arms. We should turn our pain, you know, into fighting. And the other one says, we should turn our torments in the length of time and we shall let them become our elements. And that is the question that we are talking about. Are you going to turn your pain into torture and fighting? And 
liquor and affairs and, you know, profligate spending or whatever other way you happen to express, okay, your, your fears, whatever your horrid arms are, or you're going to turn them into, you know, into your element. Okay, and I should read from my book. Here it is on page 248. A question for all of us at some point in our lives is, do we do what our lesser angels want and turn our tortures into horrid arms? Or do we do what our better angels want and turn our torments into our essential elements? That is the question that we're talking about. Okay, Do you continue to chase that outdated dream, that linear career success, that story that's been told for 150 years? Or do you write your own story? Do you do the digging? Do you do the work to excavate your pains and unearth your long-buried dreams and stop chasing someone else's dream and chase your own dream and find meaning in the story of your own life? Well, that's a beautiful place to land. And all I want to add is that when you contrast, did you have a toothache as a child question and the answers that flow from that with how do I get the next step on the ladder? The, the, the difference <laughs> is outrageous. <laughs> you know, it really is such a night and day difference. When you ask the question, okay, next step on the ladder, it might have no bearing whatsoever on what is meaningful to you. Literally none. Because it's just a game you got put into. You know, you, you woke up in, mid, in the middle of a game and you're just trying to win. And, and what, what, what's more pointless than, than, than winning the wrong game? And all the while, there is this asset deeply buried inside of you. You know, it's pain. Uh, but it's exactly the raw materials you need to be able to build a work life of meaning and of course, beyond that, because it doesn't have to be limited work life by any means, but a contribution that's lifelong, that doesn't have an expiration date, that doesn't come with a, well, now you have retired and now you've got to do some other weird thing for the rest of your life and pretend not to work. And all of the disaster that comes with that, I think, foolish concept. And instead, you can have a whole lifelong of meaning trying to alleviate this ache within yourself and also within other people. It's a, it's, a, it's a really profound question and a, and a, and a profound and beautiful conversation. Uh, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you. Really, thank you for listening. I've thoroughly enjoyed every moment with Bruce Feeler. I hope that you have too. What is one idea that has stood out to you? And what's one micro action that you can take in the next few minutes to put into action that idea? And who is somebody that you can share these ideas with? For the first five people who write a review of this episode on Apple Podcasts, you'll receive completely for free access to the Essentialism Academy. Just go to gregmcewan.com forward slash podcast promo for all the details. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.